it can't fall on the shoulders of the early career and mid-career individuals. This has to be, uh, the stakeholders are the people that are institutional leaders who really truly have to commit to this and say, uh, no more, um, you know, and what are we going to do about this? When saving lives is what you do, your standards are anything but standard. In fact, you set them higher than most to deliver results that patients can depend on. You refuse to compromise. We couldn't agree more. We are Edwards Life Sciences, and like you, we believe that good is never good enough. Rising to the challenge of today's TAVR patients isn't just a mission, it's a commitment. And because you set a higher standard, we set our sights on meeting you there. Welcome to the higher standard, your standard. Learn more at edwardstaver.com. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD from the Cleveland Clinic. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, this is uh, an important episode. Um, I say it's important because the team at Parallax, uh, you know, myself included, and um, the leadership at Ratcliffe uh, Group Limited feel strongly about diversity, equity, and inclusion. The topic uh, for today's discussion, I think, explores those um, areas, um, you know, maybe from a different angle, you know, hence um, it's Hence, it's a, it's a show on parallax, <laughs> uh, you know, not, not to sound too cliched, but my guest on today's show um, is, uh, is, is, uh, is someone who I can call a friend. Uh, you know, we've, I don't think we've met in person, but I've known her through social media and through interactions via common friends. And, uh, you know, she's uh, done some incredible work and is becoming um, a voice and a leader in cardiovascular medicine in the U.S., uh, she's assistant professor of medicine at the Department of Cardiology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And she's recently published uh, a very impactful paper which discusses an extremely relevant topic in our professional lives. Um, and, and the topic is of hostile work environment. Um, so without much further ado, um, my guest on today's show is uh, Dr. Garima Sharma. Um, Garima, welcome on the show, and thank you so much for the time. I know it's late uh, on the East Coast, uh, but thank you for doing this. I uh, really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me, uh, Ankur. And, uh, you know, this is uh, such an important topic that um, I feel that giving it a platform through Parallax um, is, is such an important initiative to create awareness about something that affects many, many different cardiologists across the globe um, and hopefully talking about these things will be the start of trying to find interventions um, and solutions to the problem that is so prevalent and pervasive. Um, sure. So Grima, let me um, start by asking you, what led to um, you doing this uh, study? You know, obviously it's an important topic. But you know, tell us some of the um, some of the motivations behind conducting such a survey. 
and you know I'm going to have you describe more about the study to our listeners. Uh, but you know the the study that we're referring to was published in uh, Journal of the American College of Cardiology and is on hostile work environment. So what what led to what was the motivation behind doing a study like this? Yes, um, you know that's a very important question. Um, I am a member of uh, the Women in Cardiology Leadership Council. And through the auspices of the WIC, we're always in the process of trying to find the evidence and the data behind um, some of uh, workplace uh, environments and cultures that impact women. So while this was designed uh, with the understanding of, um, you know, with the hope of understanding a little bit more about how the personal and professional lives of women are across the globe. I think what it turned out to be is all of cardiology. I think uh, the bigger question that we had asked uh, through the leadership and through the diversity and inclusion task force is what are some of the challenges and barriers and workplace environment variations um, and issues that uh, really penetrate into uh, from professional into personal lives of cardiologists and maybe making a deeper impact, um, not only just on how they practice, but how much they enjoy uh, cardiology overall. So with that in mind, we were trying to get a sense of how do cardiologists across the globe practice cardiology? How do they experience what are their experiences in their workplaces and what is the prevalence of harassment and discrimination? It has been reported in other literature, uh, not cardiology specific literature and certainly not to this scale. And um, as you pointed out, there really um, hasn't been a whole lot of data um, in trying to generate the evidence behind what is the variability across regions? Um, and is this, is, is this a U.S. specific problem or is the heightened perception of discrimination and harassment a U.S. specific issue? Um, and uh, as we find in our study, it is actually not. Yeah, so I'm going to, uh, you know, delve into the details of the study. But, but before I do that, I really want you to define for, for us, you know, for our listeners, including myself, um, the, the, the following words, right? Um, discrimination, um, uh, emotional harassment or harassment in general. Um, and, um, sort of, sort of, um, you know, how, how the, how the two interplay with each other. So how is discrimination leading to harassment and whether it's emotional harassment or sexual harassment, uh, talk, talk, you know, talk about these themes with us a little bit so that we understand what the study was trying to, um, you know, elucidate. Yeah. Um, so we actually had developed a 50-point survey, um, and we had very specific questions on self-perception of, uh, of discrimination. So whether a particular cardiologist felt that the work environment that they were working in was not treating them 
um, and equally. So was there a type of mistreatment that they experienced? And the mistreatment, was it based on sexual orientation or race, ethnicity, or uh, gender, or age? And then we had specific questions on who they experienced it from, what were the settings in they, where they experienced it from, whether it was a staff member or a colleague or a junior colleague or um, a senior colleague or a patient, um, and sort of tried to get a sense of uh, the perception of, uh, you know, the cardiologists themselves. In terms of harassment, we had very specific questions on sexual harassment and defined it as any of these sexual advances, whether it may be, uh, you know, uh, simple sexual slurs uh, versus objectification, um, or it was inappropriate touching or inappropriate advances or intimidation, coercion, and just very overt uh, sexual demeanor uh, or sexual bad behavior. And in terms of emotional harassment, you know, it it becomes a it's a little tough to define because uh, sexual harassment can be very overt um, and clear and very uh, clearly understood. Uh, but emotional harassment is a lot more prevalent because it is more covert and not often identified or can't be identified immediately, but it is a feeling of um, being less valued. So we ask questions specifically about um, self-worth, um, self-value, uh, micro-invalidations, uh, daily, uh, you know, uh, bullying uh, or uh, microaggressions and whether uh, that was, um, you know, experience. So we thought that all of these three different behaviors, you know, discrimination based on uh, very particular specific criteria, which uh, prevented advancement, career progression, um, particular salary, uh, you know, adjustments, um, so on and so forth. And then the harassment, uh, sexual and emotional, would lead to a larger um mistreatment of the individual, which would be uh, because of hostility. So we lump them all together and describe the collective experience of all of that is as, um, as hostility or toxicity in workplace. Um, yeah, no, extremely important themes here that you've discussed and you've uh, um, sort of brought to the surface. Um, Talk to us a little bit about how microaggression would look like, or or sound like, or feel like. Um, you know, give us give us a few practical examples so that you know listeners who are tuning in uh, can identify these microaggressions, um, whether they are experiencing you know these themselves or they are seeing their coworkers go through these. Yeah, no, so microaggressions are in many different forms, um, and they're so variable, but um, I think at everyday behaviors um, where, you know, when when uh, you're talking to a particular uh, a person and um, they may not be 
entirely responsive uh, to you, whether it is uh, multiple interruptions while you're speaking, or it is, uh, you know, invalidating what you're saying uh, by a counter argument, which may uh, be an interjection. Um, and uh, or uh, speaking over you in a particular meeting or an environment, or sometimes elevating a junior uh, person um, over uh, you simply um, as um, as a display of power. Um, and so, you know, there are so many different settings, and I, I wish I had uh, come up with some very specific case-based examples, but. Um, you know, th these these kind of things are um, everyday challenges um, where your opinion, your feelings, uh, your uh, credibility, uh, your authority um, is challenged in subtle ways um, as, as, a, as, a, as a display um, of, of, of a power battle or a power struggle. And um, it's so prevalent in, uh, in so many different settings um, that, uh, you know, once you become uh, more aware of these issues is when you start noticing them. Um, you know, initially just, uh, you know, as a personal experience is just sometimes um, draining. Um, but then when you go through these very you know, various implicit biases, training or diversity trainings, or um, that's when you realize that, you know, this, this, this feeling of emptiness or invalidity that drains you as actually a chronic assimilation or accumulation, a chronic accumulation of microaggressions uh, towards you in, in many different ways. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Grima, uh, tell us about the... Um about the results of your study, you know, in particular about the demographic that responded to your survey, uh, you know, breakdown of men versus women, uh, and what, what, what is it, what exactly you found, uh, you know, in, in the study? Yeah, so uh, we were actually able to float the survey uh, to ACC members and non-members worldwide. We had many different participants uh, through a general pool. Um, this is an online uh, survey, pay, you know, it was totally voluntary and uh, cardiologists who wish to participate did. So um, we're glad that it went out to so many different people. The survey response was standard, um, you know, about an, uh, I think an 8% survey response, which is a little lower than what we would have expected, but it did float out in, um, in the field for a couple of months, and we were able for the first time to survey geographical locations that have no information on the impact of this kind of hostility in workplace at all, not just in cardiology, but any other um, medical specialty. So that makes the study fairly unique. Um, and it's also unique in the sense that it happened through the auspices and the help of a very large international, you know, science organization that took upon it the importance of trying to understand this better. Um, 
And we, um, the components that we talked about or, you know, emotional harassment, sexual harassment and discrimination, we lumped together as feeling of any of these or all of these as experiencing hostility. And what we found is that about 44% of our survey responders, including men and women, experienced some form of this pervasive toxic behavior in the workforce at some point in their careers. And then when we split that into gender prevalence or gender split or sex spread, what we found was that, you know, women largely experienced most of this kind of toxicity. About 67% of women reported worldwide to have experienced some sort of behavior, um, which they identified as either sexual harassing behavior or discrimination and emotional harassment. But it was not just women. Uh, surprisingly, uh, 37% of the men also reported harassment and discrimination. And when you look at what men and women were really, uh, you know, reporting as discriminative behavior, women complained of gender discrimination and men largely complained of age-based uh, discrimination. And we looked at also information on who were they feeling discriminated against? And men largely reported that to be administrative staff. And uh, in terms of sexual harassment, you know, we found numbers that we thought were slightly lower than what we would have found. There are other sexual harassment, specifically sexual harassment surveys from other specialties. And so our numbers were a little lower. And also there's a one particular survey from the UK and our numbers were lower. Um, but we also think that that may be because of the heterogeneity of experiences and also uh, cultural norms. Um, but overall, 4% of uh, the survey responders had experienced sexual harassment largely, uh, mostly were women. And in terms of emotional harassment, um, which I think, you know, is much more prevalent um, than we realize or talk about. I mean, about 30% experienced some sort of emotional invalidating behavior, whether it's microaggression or uh, bullying or microinvalidation um, or intimidating behavior. Um, and 43% of women actually experienced that versus 26% of men. So you know, I think what I take home from this is that it's, it's a highly prevalent, toxic, hostile behavior. And there are multiple nuances and multiple facets of, of behaviors uh, that may be experienced uh, throughout the careers of folks. And um, I think one thing that stands out is the early career cardiologists and women experienced most of this type of hostility in workforce. Yeah, so Garima, uh, you know, just extremely provocative findings. Um, very sad, um, but, and it's, you know, the, the statement that I'm going to make is actually even even more sad. And that is that it does not surprise me. And that, 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 that that's unfortunate. I mean, it's, it's incredible that you've sort of had um, a scientific tool to document this and, and report this. In, in a in a scientific evidence-based fashion um but you know i mean you know being a man and you know early career um you know i i you know i'm i'm 
I'm not shy when I say that, you know, the, these findings don't surprise me. And that is sad. That's, it's, it's extremely sad. And, um, you know, I think it's sort of, um, at least in the, uh, in, in the training environment that I've been exposed to in the U S uh, you know, I think, um, as trainees, you know, we're encouraged and, um, you know, clinical investigation is fostered and, uh, you know, I think camaraderie is fostered. Uh, but I think that, the uh, you know, the, the plane shifts when you transition from being a fellow in training to be, to being an early career faculty. And, you know, this is something I wrote about with Akhil Narang. Uh, it was published in the European Heart Journal. Uh, the manuscript was titled Shot on Friday. And that is, uh, you know, I, the, the perception that, you know, both Akhil and I shared, uh, you know, through uh, experiences both personal and vicarious, um, you know, are that uh, for some reason, uh, as early career faculty, a lot of, a lot of people want you to fail, which, which is counterintuitive to, um, you know, what you experience when you are training or, you know, when you're a fellow in training, do, I mean, do you think I'm exaggerating or? No, I, I, I think that that is, uh, that's generally the experience of most of responders here as well. Um, you know, Ankur, and it's sort of your feeling and your experiences validated because that's exactly what this showed. Um, and where, you know, being an early career faculty member or a cardiologist, no matter whether you're in the U.S. or anywhere, is actually a risk factor for um, being discriminated against, right, or being harassed. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of makes me sad because there are multiple leaky, uh, you know, avenues or where we can lose talent, um, in cardiology, you know, we can, obviously there is, you know, we talk about the leaky pipeline and not being able to recruit as many women as we would like to. And, uh, you know, we are leaking at every, every, um, every particular juncture of career. But if we start losing early career faculty members um, out of, you know, medicine in general or cardiology or practice for whatever reason and primarily for reasons such as this, which should be entirely preventable and, and, um, and reported. Um, it kind of is, tells a, is a sorry tale for, for the future. Yeah. So let me explore this a little bit with you, Karima. Uh, and, you know, for someone who's, um, who studied this um, and who's, who's written a very eloquent paper, what do you think are some of the causative mechanisms for this behavior from whoever is perpetrating this behavior? You know, I, I mean, think, think there, there has to be some hypotheses with regard to the causation of this, this behavior and the perpetration of this behavior, particularly among, uh, you know, you know, dare I call them the victims, um, you know, but, you know, for example, women and early career faculty, um, what's the cause here? Like, what's the genesis? What's the root for this? It's a very interesting question that you've asked because I think it's, um, you know, it's very variable in, in institutions and practice settings. But what I can, I can think of is early career folks are 
you know, are a population that are largely dependent on mentors. They're dependent on sponsors. They're dependent on institutional support. They're dependent on funding. They're dependent on um, the the functionality or the function or the, you know, or largely affected by the malfunction of systems that don't work because they are just starting out their career and they're really launching into cardiology. So they require a lot of resources. They require a lot of investment. And so they also are in many ways finding their way. They're finding their footing. They're finding their, they're very um, dependent on resources, Um, which as your career progresses, one would think um, that you end up being a little bit more independent, a little bit more sure of yourself. You have your collaborative teams, you have your administrative help, you would sort of accrue some amount of maturity. And um, when the early career people are, you know, the ones that say that we feel the most um, discriminated against or feel the most harassed, um, it's also perhaps reflective of the larger um, culture of hierarchy in, 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 in cardiology, right? Because, you know, the, the feeling that you need to pay your dues, you need to earn the, you know, gray, you need to put in the work, you've got to put your head down and do the work and, and, and wait for your turn to rise up. And, you know, that's what I did. Um, you know, so why would you be somebody who, would, you know, who would get it sooner or faster? Or, or how, how can you think of a more non-traditional way to do things when these are the ways things have been done? Um, and so if you, if you come in and you have these wide varieties of ideas where things can be different or maybe more effective, you're looked upon as somebody who may be challenging the system a little bit, although all you're doing is really trying to find a footing for yourself and place for yourself. Yeah, I mean, th- this is this is sad. Um, and, uh, you know, there's also, there, I mean, so a couple comments that I, you know, I was uh, thinking of when you were speaking, uh, you know, first was, you know, when you were discussing the findings of the study, uh, and I'm sure the reviewers may have asked this question to you. So if, if they did, I'd be, I'd be curious to understand and learn how you responded. And that is, um, you know, I mean, did any of the reviewers ask you if, uh, you know, there was inherent uh, bias in who responded to these surveys and how did you adjust for it? You know, because it may be that people who had the perception that they had, you know, experiences of harassment and discrimination were the ones who were more likely to respond. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that was, you're, you're very, uh, very true. And so there's always amount of, you know, responder or survey bias, right? Um, no survey is free of it because it is a survey. <laughs> and um, I think, you know, you can make it as anonymous and as specific and try to hone the questions down to uh, what outcome you really want to measure. But at the end of the day, it is true that people who are truly interested in the topic of diversity, of equity, of inclusion, of belonging are the most likely ones to have taken the survey. 
or when they thought about, you know, global survey on discrimination and harassment, it is quite possible that people actually genuinely that, you know, these words actually genuinely trigger a response in you to be able to, you know, find out what these questions are about are more likely to take it. So yes, there is uh, a survey responder bias. Um, we can't really control for it. Um, we can ask questions that are specific that can help us, you know, identify the different nuances of a, of a personal experience. Uh, but I don't know of uh, any way around it. Yeah. And then uh, my second question to you, um, which, you know, I'm, what I'm trying to address with this question is sort of a, a sort of a systemic or a systematic solution to, uh, you know, the perpetrators of, uh, of these behaviors at work. Um, do, do you think that they um, may not feel that way, that that's what they're doing to their junior colleagues? And is that a true blind spot for them? Yeah. Yeah, I, I truly believe that it is. Because, uh, it, you know, this kind of behavior is a, is a trickle-down behavior, right? So I, I, I truly believe that a culture of a place is defined by not the behaviors that are punished. The culture and the toxicity of a place is defined by the behaviors that are unpunished, what's tolerated. And what is tolerated is normal or normalized. And you normalize it to an extent your tolerance level against it is so high that when you see it, um, you truly are numb to it in a way where it has become such an important, you know, such a pervasive part of your culture that you do not recognize it as hostile. Uh, because it it is uh, is sort of a learned process over many years, um, and so when the perpetrators, as you as you call it, of this behavior actually behave, it's it's a part of their learned experience, you know. Um, and so, how will they know it is odd, or it is abnormal, or it is toxic if that's all they've known? Um, yes, it's it's uh, it's extremely sad. It's it's also deeply concerning. And I mean, it sounds like it's not something which is, you know, specific to the U.S. It sort of appears to to be ubiquitous, which is you know, which is even more concerning. I mean, you've you know, I was I was reading the paper just before this, just before the recording of this podcast, and I mean, you've you've your sample sizes, you know, Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, you know. Um, Central America, South America, North America. Um, I'm not sure if you included uh, Australia. Yeah, yeah, it was a small sample in the Middle East and and Asia as well. So yeah, so I mean, it's pretty much you know, it's it's you know, like you said at the beginning of the of the recording uh, that it's it's a global uh, sort of footprint and snapshot. And you know, I, I really thank the uh, the the survey. You know, the uh, the cardiologists or colleagues that actually took the survey um, because you know they've uh, you know obviously incrementally added to 
the, the growing evidence base and the literature in this space. Um, I want to spend sort of the last 10, 15 minutes maybe discussing about some of the potential solutions um, to this problem because, you know, look, you know, I think we spend a lot of, a lot of time at work. We, you know, spend a lot of, uh, a significant portion of our lives at, at, at a workplace environment. And if we're not fulfilled or happy or satisfied, we'll bring that back home. And, um, you know, it, it, it affects our lives, our, our well-being, uh, and, you know, it affects how we, how we may raise our, our children. So, you know, I think happiness at work is, is extremely important. So what, what are some of the solutions you think to address this issue? So I, I think there's, you know, there it's multi-pronged, you know, and, and I know it sounds cliche, but it truly is because it can't be one size that fits all. I think really there is so much heterogeneity in how we practice, where we practice, how much we practice our work hours and what we do for a living and our colleagues and surroundings. But I think one thing that is really clear is that this uh, kind of impact that it can have should be a priority. You know, workplace well-being, workplace fulfillment, enrichment should be a priority um, because if it's not, then it's going to lead to a large portion of disengaged, disenchanted, apathetic individuals. And while we, you know, we always say, you know, we don't want conflict at work and we shouldn't have conflict, but I, I think some sort of healthy conflict is important because it helps teams work together and healthy conflict actually drives innovation. And the opposite of conflict is not harmony, it's actually apathy. So promoting healthy conflict is what we should be looking for. But specifically, I think institutions should be asking their workforce about this. They have to collect, they have to compile, and then they have to compare, and then they have to report. And if this is not collected, compiled, compared, and reported, then nobody really knows what is um, the hostility index of an institution. In fact, you know, there should be a report card, um, just like a diversity card. This, there should be an understanding of what are the lived experiences of people at work. And then having a zero tolerance policy um, towards egregious behaviors um, once validated and, you know, and, you know, reported. Easy reporting, safe reporting, um, stopping of victim blaming or victim shaming or um, intimidation or threatening uh, them with consequences um, would lead to more people speaking up. Um, I think also important to to actually educate bystanders. So like bystander allyship, where you see, if you see somebody being, you know, aggressive towards someone or intimidating or bullying somebody or constantly interrupting somebody, I think saying, I think that's wrong and that's what you're doing is, is a way for the other person to back down. And I think men can do this really well. Um, and, you know, the allyship of men is so important for women here because, um, you know, workplace is still largely men. And, um, 
And then actually, you know, I, I hate to say implicit bias training, but it helps in some ways because it helps you recognize um, the biases in workplace of, of very different types and, and, you know, and subtle behaviors, which nobody speaks up against because really sometimes you, you don't recognize why you're experiencing that. So that's important. I think, uh, you know, it, it can't fall on the shoulders of the early career and mid-career individuals. This has to be, uh, the stakeholders are the people that are institutional leaders who really truly have to commit to this and say, uh, no more, um, you know, and what are we going to do about this? Um, because it is uh, clearly uh, data that's telling us that's everywhere. Um, and how to make them partners in this so that collectively we can find solutions which works for an individual institution. So, so thank, thank you for sharing some of the solutions, you know, incredible answer. What I was going to ask you was, have you seen such initiatives, um, you know, take place at, uh, maybe, you know, maybe your institution or some of the other academic medical institutions in, in America? Yeah, I think it's a very important question, um, uh, Ankur, because there are institutions here now that are recognizing this. They are measuring this. They're reporting this. They're training their workforce to recognize this and speak up. But I honestly feel that it should go beyond a four-hour implicit bias training, right? Because... Yes, we can we can have you know diversity managers and diversity task force, and then we can sort of recognize this as a as a problem. But collectively, I think cardiologists are going to have to find a solution to this problem. In terms of academic institutions, yes, there are many. Actually, my own has as a has a very strong uh, presence in, in the Department of Medicine about this and recently has really led to so many different initiatives within many different subspecialties. Cardiology is still fairly traditional in many ways, not just in my institution, but everywhere. Um, and I think that the work that ACC is doing um, is making an impact. The work that folks like you are doing are giving this kind of um, studies, which you know, on, on, on paper are, are survey data. <laughs> you know, this is not a proteomic or metabolomic study, right? This is not a translate. We didn't find the cure to the next problem uh, or to COVID. But, uh, you know, it's a, I think it, these these studies are important because, um, you know, and, and, and kudos to ACC for trying to be on the forefront of something like this, recognizing that clinician well-being um, and, you know, health equity and work equity is is important to make cardiology a viable option not just for women but also for men um yeah no um agreema this has been a terrific interview and um i know it's uh getting late for both of us in the evening but you know the the topic is is extremely important is is a topic which is very close to my heart and uh something i i hope that Parallax can become a, a platform for, you know, a platform for both discussion, but also dissemination and, and promoting change um, to make, uh, you know, the work environments for, for our colleagues 
uh, a better one. Um, so thank you again for, uh, you know, sharing um, your time with us, you know, late this evening. Um, do you have any closing remarks uh, for our audience, for our listeners and for Parallax? No, I, I think I really appreciate the ability to talk about this in detail. Um, I do think that the folks that are listening um, use this um, as an introspective platform. Um, you know, all of us want the best for our uh, profession. Um, all of us truly, I truly believe that, you know, everybody wants the best for themselves and their colleagues. And I think when studies like this come out that are looking at um, the ugly underbelly, I think we shouldn't be sh shrugging this under the rug and denying that this is not your experience. And if this is not your experience and you haven't had this, then you're very fortunate and maybe you have a secret sauce and maybe I want to drink the Kool-Aid that you're drinking. Um, but at the end of the day, when a large portion, almost 50% of the workforce sell, tells you that something is wrong, then people need to wake up and recognize that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's extremely relevant message, extremely important message. I mean, you know, the, the two big high risk groups in your study were women and early career, you know, based on age, you know, age being a, a, a discriminant, um, and, um, you know, 44%, you know, like you said, almost 50% is not a small number. It's like half of your workforce. Um, so clearly an extremely important study. Congratulations to you and your co-investigators for conducting, you know, such an elegant study and, you know, getting it published in one of the leading journals in cardiovascular medicine. Um, and thanks again for your time this evening. And, you know, thank you for sharing your insights and solutions with us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening. <laughs>